Welcome to Coloring Outside the Lines. I'm your host, Dan Zetterstrom. This is something a little different. Every now and then I'll be exploring subjects that I feel are relevant to the conversation around the search for other forms of life and our place in the universe. My hope is that you find the conversations both informative and thought-provoking, and that they help you see the world around you in a new light. With that said, thank you for tuning in. Let me introduce my guest. My guest today is a marine ecologist who uses passive acoustics to understand communication behavior and the impacts of marine resource management decisions on underwater ecosystems. You might know her work from the 2021 documentary Fathom, where Dr. Fournay and Dr. Ellen Garland set out on an undertaking as colossal as their subjects to decipher the complex communication of whales and uncover a culture eons older than our own. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Michelle Fournay. Hi, Michelle. How are you doing today? Hi, good morning. I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, that's great. Thank you for coming. Uh, you, you got coffee with you there? I've got a cup of tea with me this morning. To get oh, the a day tea started. person. Great. Lovely, <laughs> lovely. Okay, so let's dive in. For those who aren't aware, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your field of study. Sure. So um, I am an acoustic ecologist, which means I study, I study how the natural world functions from the perspective of sound. And predominantly, I study underwater animals. Um, and then within that, I mostly, my, my sort of primary subject is humpback whales. But that said, really what, I, what I'm trying to do is, is to be a good listener to the natural world and to understand how sound facilitates natural interactions and what it is that we as humans can do to protect natural soundscapes and to more effectively and happily coexist in this sonic world that we live in. And how can we cultivate reverence and appreciation and space for animals that rely on sound in order to interact, in order to function for their basic life functions and and what it is that we are doing and can be doing to help facilitate that interaction so on the most basic level it means that i'm a researcher that i do i do research on underwater animals and what sounds they make um but on, on the broader scale it means that at the end of the day i am trying to make this world a better place for humans to listen and a better place for animals to live that's a really cool life mission, I have to say. Um, in, in the film, Dr. Alan Garland talks about kind of noticing the weird, and, and science often finds kind of interesting phenomena in, in the anomalies in data. And for a long time, we assumed that humpback whales were just singing pretty songs, and it turns out that that's not true. Uh, but there's a lot more going on, and you've set out to kind of decode that language. So what, what drove you to do this, and where do you even start with something like this? How do you decipher even what a word is? Yeah, that's a great question. So what drove me to do this wasn't wasn't science. I wasn't a, a natural born scientist. You know, some people are are born with a desire to do science or to do math or to do physics. Um, I, I did not have that. Um, but what I've always had is a lot of curiosity. And that curiosity has driven me to many different places and lots of different fields. And it took me a long time in my life to figure out what I wanted my career to be? What did I want to do professionally? And in that wandering, I, I moved to Southeast Alaska, not because I thought, oh, I'm going to go and, and, and understand whales or I'm going to be a big you know, animal lover. Um, I, I moved there because I was broke and because I wanted to get out of Chicago where I was living and I wanted to get back outside. And so I took a job on a whale watching boat because they would hire me. I had never seen a whale. I had never been to Alaska. I hadn't spent a lot of time on the water. And I had the privilege of being out on this boat for 60 hours a week, every week for four months out of the year. And, um, and I, I spent hours and hours and hours with whales. And I started to notice though that this was a really profound experience for me. It was a really profound experience for my passengers. But these boats were noisy and I, I wanted to do something to give back. If I had all of this time, why was I not doing more? This was benefiting me, but it wasn't actually benefiting the animals. And so from there, I started to really think and concentrate on what the impact of noise might be on the animals that I was watching. I went back to school and in order to even begin to figure out how noise is changing humpback whale behavior, well, we first have to know what they're saying. And it was shocking to me that in 2000, I think I started this work in 2009, but in 2011, I really dove into acoustics. And I mean, just 11 years ago, we didn't even know what sounds Alaskan humpback whales made. 
we hadn't we didn't have a good catalog to say oh yeah that belongs to a humpback and that was shocking to me that there was so little that was known and so i began documenting the sounds that the whales made and then from there i thought okay now i can do this conservation now i can meet my conservation goal but I couldn't because we still didn't know what the sounds meant. And how do you protect something that you don't understand? You have to demonstrate that it's vital. And so that sort of set me down this other rabbit hole of saying, okay, well, I guess the next step in my conservation journey is to understand how the whales are communicating. And so I spent hours and hours and hours listening to these animals and trying to understand how they were interacting, developing different hypotheses. And then finally in 2019, going out into the field and designing this very low impact experiment that would help us to understand how the whales were interacting with each other. And I'm still following that line of questioning, still trying to answer the questions of what do these sounds mean? Um, but it's a very humbling experience because as it turns out, these whales can produce dozens, hundreds, possibly an infinite combination of sounds. And we are sort of going through them one by one. One of the difficult things is that humpback whales can produce this wide, wide range of sounds and, um, you know, possibly an infinite combination of sounds. And right now I, we're in the process of trying to understand them one by one. And so it seemed like a natural start to pick the sound that humpback whales use the most. And that's sort of where we began this journey. And we'll see what new methods we can come up with and how long it might, how, how long this rabbit hole might, how deep it might be. <laughs> That's really cool. Before we get to that kind of magical eureka moment sound that uh, was spoken about in the film, uh, can mm -hmm. I just ask, uh, did whale communication kind of change during uh, with, with the reduced noise during the pandemic? How did how did that affect that? Yeah, so we that's a really great question. And that's a study that we started right when the pandemic hit, actually. Um, I remember sitting on the floor of my office on March the 13th, Friday the 13th, 2020. And that was the last day that I was at work before the pandemic hit. And we're all sort of packing up our offices and, and wondering what's going to happen next in life. And um, and someone said to me, are you going to put a hydrophone down? And I thought, oh, yeah, yes, yes, I'm absolutely going to put a hydrophone down. And I had been so caught up in sort of the social implications that I, for, for 10 minutes, I didn't, I wasn't thinking about whales. But we sent a hydrophone up to Glacier Bay, Alaska, and we listened during the pandemic and did find what I think several people have found, which is the ocean got really quiet. And that's not true everywhere, but it certainly was true there. And this is an area where we've been listening to whales for 50 years. And actually a little bit longer, we have this old record from the 70s. And one of the amazing things that we found was that when it got quieter, the quality of the conversation changed. The, the choice of sound types that the whales use shifted, that during quiet periods, they were more likely to contact call to, um, or sorry, during noisy periods, they were more likely to contact call to sort of try and stay in contact with one another. And during these quiet periods associated with the pandemic, the conversation got richer. It got more complex. And when we went back and compared this to these old recordings we had from 1976, when there weren't a lot of boats in the area, what we found is that during the pandemic, they basically reverted back to a sort of pre-industrial conversation um, almost instantaneously. So wow. it was, yeah, it was super, super, super cool to see. And also an indication of just how resilient humpback whales are that they can they can sort of bounce right back when given the opportunity yeah absolutely it, it almost makes me think of you know when you're in a coffee shop with a friend and and it's a noisy environment and you don't have privacy and you talk about different things and and you might not get into as complex conversations as you would if you had yeah privacy yeah that's exactly it it's completely different versus like sitting on your couch cuddled up when you can yeah like, bear all and then when there's time <laughs> for, for nuance you know when 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 there's when there's time for subtlety Humans tend to think that we're amazingly intelligent, yet here we are unable to talk to other forms of life on this planet. Um, you know, there's there's a lot to be said about communicating on our terms versus on their terms, by which I mean, you know, whales learning English versus us learning whale. Um, yeah. You, you uh, said something in the movie where you said, uh, if I do my job, the whale will never know that I'm there. So you kind of have to trick the whale. Um, and I wanted to know how much would, and you've spoken kind of, you touched on this a second ago, but how, how much would knowing that you're there affect your results? And do those cha sounds change in a group setting? Yeah, I mean, it would affect my results hugely. I mean, I don't, 
contrary to sort of how all of the media around Fathom has played out, I don't have any desire to talk to whales. Um, in fact, I, I would hope that humans never do. I would hope that we would leave them alone and that we can happily let them go and do their thing. And, and so when I say that I have to trick the whale, that's because my goal is to understand how whales talk to each other, how they naturally interact. And if I want to capture that as a researcher, my job is to have as much fidelity as possible to the natural setting, which means I have to beh behave like a whale. And a great deal of effort is put into making sure that the playbacks, the, you know, the speaker that we put into the water to play sounds to these animals, which is what we do. You know, we go to the ocean, we find whales and, and we play sounds to them and record how they respond. The goal is to play sounds that sound exactly like a whale and that are played in the exact same cadence that a whale would say them and, and to really mimic the natural world as closely as possible. If I don't do that, if I go out and I play um, music to a whale, for example, which I've done, you know, you have to have a positive control sometimes. So, you know, I, I, I played Bob Marley to a whale once. And which, which and, song did you choose? Uh, I think we did Three Little Birds. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, and then what I'm testing is, does the whale have a novel response to a stimuli that it, it doesn't know? So then, then I'm asking a completely different question. How do, does a whale respond when it, when it sees or hears something unexpected? And that's not my question. I don't want to surprise the whale. I want to understand the whale. And so the work that I do, the whole goal is to go out and to be as least invasive as possible while still deepening our understanding. And it takes a while to do that. I mean, I've definitely played sounds to whales that I had to remove from the study because when I went back and listened to the recording, I was like, ooh, oh, that definitely sounds like Mickey Mouse. Like that definitely sounds like whale robot and not like whale. And so yes, a whale probably responded to it, but you know, if Siri started talking to me without me, you know, chatting her up first, I might be surprised. And yeah, so for sure. it's, it's very similar to that with the whale is, is the whale, whales are, are, are very subtle, complex, intelligent creatures, and they have a very highly developed communication system. So if I play a sound that sounds insincere, without knowing everything there is to know about humpback whale hearing, I would be surprised if it couldn't tell the difference between a synthesized sound and, 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 and a real one. So my job is to be as faithful as possible. Sure. So let's talk about some of these sounds. So in the film we identified, uh, there was the teepee, the droplet, the growl, quite, quite a lot yeah. of calls, but there was one kind of magical one called a whoop call. Uh, <laughs> that seemed to be the key. Can you tell me about that and whether all humpback whales make it? Yeah. Um, this call, I think, is, is one of the most important sounds that humpback whales worldwide produce. So um, it's it's a really lovely call. It sounds like um, is sort of um, how how I impersonate it. And we've done some research, again, sort of laying the foundation for understanding all these things. And in every population that we have looked for this call, we have found it. So I've listened to recordings from Antarctica and heard whoop calls. I've listened to recordings from South Africa and heard whoop calls, from Hawaii, from, from Rorotonga, from Iceland, from Norway, from California, from Alaska. Every place where we have looked for it, we have found it. And this call is produced by male whales, by female whales, by young whales, by old whales. And they, there are several calls that we think are are ubiquitous like this that might be innate, you know, calls that are sort of embedded in the humpback whale repertoire. But this one really dominates in that it's very commonly used. And when I, you know, I've, I've listened to hundreds, probably thousands of hours of humpback whale, you know, acoustic exchanges. And one of the things that myself and my colleague, Chris Gabriel, and, and her colleague, Lauren Wild, sort of noticed just by listening is that this call occurs in these counter calls that you hear one and a few moments you hear another one and they're slightly different. And so we developed this hypothesis that this is a contact call. This is a way that a whale would find and identify another whale. And so, so kind so, of like yelling Marco Polo. Yeah, a little thing. bit like Marco Polo, a little bit, exactly. 
And, and, and the other thing that we're, we're working on now, and I'm actually headed to Alaska in just a few weeks to dive into this, is, is this concept of voice. Is can you tell the individual by the sound of their voice? And, and if so, is this the right call to find it? If all whales are producing this call and whales use this to counter call back and forth with one another, if there is embedded this concept of voice, it means that whales might be using this, this call to, to identify one another. And what we know, and there's actually some new research that just came out that demonstrates that humpback whales in Alaska, I mean, they form relationships that last for decades and, and different, different whales spend time in sort of the, in different communities. And, and how do they find each other? If you're going to maintain a relationship underwater where, where light travels a very short distance and sound travels very, very far, it makes sense that if you're trying to find someone that you know, that you'll do so through sound. And so I think that this whoop call is, um, is the whale's way of maintaining contact with one another. And, and, when, and, and it also just shows up everywhere when you listen. It's a wonderful sound to hear. And so it made sense when we're trying to understand this system of communication to, to start there, to start with the foundational. You know, you said earlier in this conversation that part of what science does is to recognize the unusual, you know, to find the weird. And so much of science and a lot of society is about identifying the rare, the rare and the precious. And um, I do the opposite of that. I want to understand the most mundane humpback whale behavior there is. I want to know what these whales do every single day without even giving it a second thought. Um, I, I am much less interested in the anomalous, and, and I want to be able to perceive the world from the perspective of these animals, which means understanding their ordinary behavior. And I think that this whoop call is sort of deeply seated in the root of, of their, their ordinary day-to-day -day life. It's a really kind of magical call because it kind of almost sounds like they could be using it as a as a name or something, you know, an identifier for each other. Um, and, and it's amazing to think that there's kind of this complex culture there. Um, but I was hoping that you'd speak a little bit more about how complex that culture is. What what do we mean by that when they say that we say that it's one of the oldest complex cultures? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, and, you know, the, I, I'll apologize now to the cultural anthropologists out there because um, biologists have definitely co-opted this concept of culture. And there's quite a, a large scientific debate over whether or not animals can have culture. Um, I certainly land on the side of, yes, animals can have culture and humpback whales are a great example of that. Um, culture can be defined as information which is transmitted and learned. Um, so information that one individual or one population gets from another individual or another population. So it's not genetically passed on. It's not um, inherited from, from, you know, from parent to offspring. It's information that spreads and it can either be horizontally transmitted. So you can learn it from someone of your same generation, um, someone you're not related to. It can be obliquely transmitted. So someone from another generation might send it down to a lower generation that they're not related to. It's, it's this concept that we can transfer and that animals can transfer information. And they adopt that and it becomes a part of their behavior and it becomes a part of how they, they survive and how they thrive. So we think of whale song as this really great example of cultural transmission because it's learned because animals learn it from each other. And some of Ellen's work, and, and really she's a person to talk to about this, demonstrates that this song, it, it travels at, at large scale from one population to another population. And that it sort of moves from ocean basin to ocean basin in this pattern of social learning. And we see this also with foraging behavior. You know, humpback whales are really behaviorally plastic. They learn very quickly. And so one animal might develop a new foraging technique and then another animal will observe it and adopt it. And that behavior spreads. And so the next thing we know, we see a behavior that was really isolated amongst just a few individuals. And, it, and now it's a handful of individuals and now it's hundreds of individuals and now it's thousands of individuals. And now it's moving from one population to another population. And so what's lovely about studying humpback whales in terms of culture is watching them learn from each other and watching them teach each other. And of course, this all has to be observed at these really grand scales because, um, you know, whales 
communicate over long distances, they travel long distances, they live long lives. So to watch a behavior ripple outward from one to many takes a lot of perspective. Um, but yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're an excellent example of it in nature, for sure. Amazing. Uh, th there's a great sequence in the film where it's kind of um, a pitch black screen and, and you see these kind of light shows uh, on the screen as you're hearing the sounds. Uh, kind of like lighthouses in the dark and the voiceover says it's like knowing where the stars fit within time and space with just your ears i thought that was a really beautiful way to pour it and it made me think of how the ocean just has this barrage of sound and i know if it was me that would give me a massive headache and i wouldn't know where to start with it but um how, how do whales kind of process all of those different kind of signals oh i don't know <laughs> I, I, I have no idea how they process these signals. It's true because it isn't just the sound of each other that they're processing. It's also the sound of all the other animals in the ocean that they're processing. And they likely respond to that. Um, you know, there's, there's fish and there's seals and there's wind and there's rain. And, and I, I think that in the same way that, you know, I can, I can look out into my garden and, I can see the flowers and, and the dew drops and the rain falling at the same time. And my eyes can process that. And if I'm processing it carefully, I can, I can both know what's there and I can also appreciate it. I think that that's likely how it is for whales. Um, you know, the sounds that they hear, they have millions of years of evolutionary processes that have allowed them to interpret complex sounds and to pay attention to them in a way that seems almost impossible for humans. And, yeah. and so I think as always, putting the animal into context helps quite a bit. They've spent generations upon generations upon generations learning how to interpret those acoustic stars. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting how, how we are, how we see the world as a product of how our biology developed and evolved. Um, mm -hmm. To that end, uh, excuse my ignorance, but how, how do whales even make the sounds? Do they have vocal cords like we do or something else? Kind of. They have vocal folds, which is like a vocal cord homologue. It's, you know, the whale version of a vocal cord. And um, I never get this quite right. I really should do better at it. But humans have vocal cords that go in one direction. They believe they're horizontally and whales have vocal folds that go vertically. I could be wrong about that. But basically they, they do. They have vocal folds that are very similar to ours. And they pass air back and forth through these vocal folds, similar to the way that humans produce sound. The difference is it's a closed system. When we produce sound, we exhale or inhale as we're talking. But whales, when they're producing sound underwater, are not releasing air. Um, you know, there's no bubbles coming out of their of their blowhole when they vocalize. And so it's actually the passage of sound back and forth across these vocal folds, but also through a series of sinuses that are in their skull. So it's just the passage of air over space producing vibrations. Um, and humpback whales are, are exceptional in the range of sounds that they make. So we don't see that in a lot of other, in any other marine mammals, except perhaps bowhead whales. Um, and so a lot of that complexity, we don't actually, we don't, we don't know the mechanism behind it, um, other than to say that it is still this mammalian system of communication, but a closed, a closed system. That's really cool. Do, do whales use kind of, because sound travels differently in different mediums. So I mm -hmm. wondered if whales kind of use different frequencies to call further or shorter distances, maybe? Sure. I mean, that's definitely the running hypothesis. And we use that hypothesis when we try and infer call function. Um, and that's absolutely true for other odonocetes like, um, like dolphins and porpoises. So low frequency sound underwater will travel much further than high frequency sound. So the sound of a blue whale, I mean, modeling has shown that blue whale and fin whale vocalizations can travel for thousands of kilometers, whereas um, white-sided dolphins, for example, that have a very high frequency echolocation clicks those clicks will only travel several meters. Um, and so there is absolutely a relationship between frequency and distance. And um, for humpback whales that produce sound within the range of human hearing, you know, everything that they, that they all the sounds they produce, we can more or less hear. Um, we, we can use whether or not they've produced this really high squeaky upsweep or this really low boom to infer something about call function. Um, and then some of the sounds that they make are very closely coupled with things like prey. You know, humpback whales produce a feeding call in the Pacific, in Southeast Alaska and in Northern British Columbia. It's a 500 hertz call. Sounds a little bit like an opera singer, you know, sustaining a note. 
And um, we don't hear that call in other populations. We do believe that this call is culturally transmitted, that it's passed from one, you know, one generation to the other. Um, but that call is very closely coupled with hearing in fish, in, in one specific fish in the Pacific herring. And so the only time we hear it is when humpback whales are foraging on Pacific herring. And if they upshifted and made that call much higher or downshifted and made the call much lower, the fish wouldn't hear it as well. And so they wouldn't respond. And so wow. we see that humpback whales are very adept at coupling the sounds they make with the environments that they're in. How far can your your microphones hear then? Because I imagine there's there's a lot of work that goes into replicating the, those kind of, you know, the ears that can pick up those sounds underwater. Yeah, well, it all depends on how loud the whale is calling. Um, so, you know, humpback whales, when they sing, they produce these really loud songs. Songs can be heard for kilometers, um, you know, tens, tens of kilometers, depending on oceanographic conditions. Um, where I do my work, the sounds don't actually travel very far. Like my microphone can hear far. My microphone can hear boats that are 10 miles away. Um, but it can't hear a whale that's that far away because the whale isn't that loud. So what I find and the, the, what, what the science tells us is that in Alaska, you can only hear humpback whales for maybe three or four kilometers, not that far, you know, given the fact that they can produce sounds that can travel for tens or 20, you know, you know tens of kilometers. Um, and so the question there is why? Why is it that humpback whales in Alaska are so quiet? What secrets are they telling that they are whispering instead of screaming? And when we do our work, we try and replicate that exactly. So we produce sounds that are the same loudness or I guess the same quietness as the whales itself. Um, but the answer is that the, uh, the whales that I'm listening to in Alaska aren't actually that far away. Usually if I can see them, I can hear them. And usually if I can hear a whale on my hydrophone, it's probably within eyesight. Okay, that's interesting. Earlier, you mentioned uh, the whales travel real far, and I know that birds navigate using magnetic fields, and there's there's all sorts of ways that animals interpret the world. Um, do we know how humpback whales navigate the world? No. Um, so I hope that there are lots of budding marine biologists out there that are still interested in answering all of the questions that we it seems like we we should know and we don't. Um, <laughs> we we know there's some evidence that similar to birds that humpback whales might be using. Um, might be using magnets. There's a really, really interesting paper that says that humpback whales might actually be using um, gravitational pull, you know, differences oh, wow. in the gravitational field um, to to migrate more effectively. Um, there's plenty of hypotheses that whales listen for acoustic cues and that they can actually listen their way to where they're going. Um, I, I mean, as an acoustician, I certainly subscribe to that one. I know that if I close my eyes and walk up and down my street, I know how close I am to my house. I mean, I can I can hear my, my chickens clucking before I turn the corner and I know that I'm almost home. And we know that soundscapes in the ocean are unique. That sound of a coral reef is different than the sound of a kelp bed, which is different than the sound of the basin in the open ocean. So likely they, they could be using sound. But do we know exactly? No. No, we know what they do, but we don't necessarily know how or why they do it. And I would say that that is very much where we are with a lot of science, with a lot of marine mammal sciences. Often we know the what, and that took a long time and lots of people. We're beginning to understand the how, but it's going to be the future marine biologists who really are tasked with the why. The, the frontier there is, is really incredible. And you're right to point out that there's a lot that we think of as kind of solved that really isn't, you, you know, the, the world's are kind of, it's full of these real mysteries that people can go out and solve. What What is the, the kind of weirdest or coolest way that an animal, uh, you know, communicates or, or kind of sees the world that you've come across? That's a great question. I mean, there's so many amazing examples of how animals communicate that are completely non-intuitive to humans. Um, I mean, I'm always partial to, to underwater animals, but well, I mean, this is a, a fairly common example, but the waggle dance in honeybees, you know, 
they they will fly in specific patterns in 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 this sort of aerial dance to transmit information on where on where pollen is and on where good you know where flower sources are i mean that's an, a very what we think of as a comparatively simple creature with this incredibly complex system of communication which i think is just extraordinary um or or you know you know other sort of simple examples are the fact that like birds will couple the sounds of their calls with their environment. You can listen to a bird and you can tell whether or not it's calling from a prairie or whether or not it's calling from a forest because sound can be more complex in a prairie. It doesn't run into trees and bounce around, but you might need to have a simpler call to, to call in the forest. Um, but certainly some of my favorite sounds that I've ever listened to are, are marine animals. Um, I would encourage everyone to go and listen to the vocalization of a bearded seal. It's one of the most extraordinary sounds on this planet. And it sounds like it couldn't even come from Earth. It sounds like what you might imagine the soundtrack to a Marvin the Martian cartoon might be. And, and that animal is in the high Arctic, on the very northern tips of Alaska and, and, and off of you know, Greenland. And if you listen then to the sound of a Weddell seal, which is an Antarctic seal, the two will never meet. They will never cross the equator and interact. But it's amazing how similar their vocalizations are. Weddell seals will also produce sounds that seem like they couldn't possibly be coming from an animal. It must be, be coming from a ray gun. Um, and so what does it mean that these two seal species that are you know, millions of years separated in evolutionary lineage are sort of acoustic cousins in their icy bays? So I would say that the Weddell seals and the bearded seals are perhaps the most interesting animals to listen to. I will definitely link those sounds in the description so people can go and listen to them. And I'll, I'll do that right after our talk as well. Ah, oh, wonderful. Good, good, good. Uh, you, you talked about uh, in, in other places, understanding sound through experience and how your dad's love of classical music helped you kind of appreciate sound. And in the movie, I really loved uh, the, the human touch, the moments where I got to watch uh, all of you guys kind of listening to those sounds and closing your eyes and really experiencing the moment. Um, and it reminded me of in, in the movie Arrival, the researcher studying the kind of ET language. She, she's affected by the language she's studying. I think it's called the Sapir-Whorf mm -hmm. hypothesis. And I wanted to ask how your research has affected you and if you dream maybe in whoops now. <laughs> um, my research has very much affected me. I am, I am a combination of naturalist and biologist in that all of my hypotheses are driven by observations first, and then I develop studies to answer those questions, which means I don't go out into the natural world with an expectation. I, I, I spend a lot of time observing, and that is very much something that I learned from my family, from my stepfather, um, how, how to be a good listener. And, and that process is definitely iterative. It was the process of listening to music that taught me how to listen to whales. And then in the over a decade now that I've been listening to whales, I found that I have learned how to listen to other things in a way that I did not expect. Um, I hear subtlety that I didn't hear before I spent so much time with headphones on listening to things underwater. And I very rarely hear silence because the world is very rarely quiet. And, and that's something that I learned from listening to whales, that it isn't just about listening to the sounds that they make, it is listening to the pauses in between the sounds that they make. And so I don't dream in whoops anymore. I used to. And okay. when I'm in the field, I certainly, I dream, I dream about the sounds and I dream about the ocean. What I dream about is whales that are impossibly big, larger than houses, bigger than the Empire State Building that are in our world. So I have this recurring dream of these giant whales that are, are swimming through sort of city streets that are now oceans. And as if to say like, this is how large this animal's existence actually is. As big as they are in the ocean, the essence of them is actually much, much bigger. And you can figure that out if you listen. And so you can actually begin to get the scale of the animal 
by listening to it rather than looking at it. And I, and so I think that being able to listen to these animals gives me a greater appreciation. I guess for, for, yeah, for that scale. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, I really hope that one day someone kind of takes your description there and kind of makes a visual so you can see that that would be a really cool, you know, painting or, or CG kind of scape. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. So whales really evolved to build relationships in the dark and in a real figurative sense, humanity is kind of similar. You know, we come into this world in the dark and we're all kind of putting our faith in other people when we, you know, make connections. Uh, so based on your research, I, I wanted to ask if you think there are lessons that humanity can, can learn from whales and if you think that nature is more about survival of the fittest or if it's more about cooperation. Um, I'll answer the latter question first. I think it is about both. I think that we, it, it, nature is complex. And in some cases, it is survival of the fittest and strong survive. And in other species and other contexts, it is the cooperative that survive. And I think that it is important to recognize that natural laws are varied and that there is no one single thing that applies to everything. I mean, even even gravity has its limitations underwater. You can defy it with buoyancy. And so I, I, I think that it is important to recognize that there is no black and white answer to any question about nature. And maybe that's the lesson that I have learned from whales is that it is okay to not know. Not knowing something doesn't make it lesser than. Something being ordinary doesn't mean that it's not also extraordinary and that it is not always the exception to the rule that is interesting. Sometimes it is simply being that is interesting. And I, I worry sometimes that we spend so much time trying to be special and unique and different and to stand out that that becomes more important than the ability to simply gloriously be. And humpback whales spend all of their time simply gloriously being. I mean, they're out there right now doing exactly what they do. And and our species finds it fascinating when they take a breath. All they have to do is breathe to be impressive. <laughs> and I think that we can um, we can perhaps apply that same thing to to each other. Um, we do not need to do backflips to be extraordinary. Um, and we can also be a little bit more patient and a little bit slower. And, and and that there actually is, there's not necessarily a rush with everything we do. What I love about spending time with whales is I find my heart rate slows and, and things get quieter and calmer and, um, that was certainly something that I hope that people could take away from spending time with nature writ large, whether it's a humpback whale or a robin in your backyard, that taking time to be present um, is really quite a lovely gift. I really love the, the effort they put into the soundscapes in the film, because there are all these moments of just silence and quietness of you all out on the ocean. And, and it really immerses me in essentially what you described there, you know? Um, it's always better to go outside, but if you happen to be watching a movie, it's good that they included it. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was really, really important. You know, Drew, the director of the film, he has become a dear, dear friend. Um, he spent a lot of time with me in Alaska before he started filming. So he came up there with me and spent some time in the summer and he was just blown away. I remember him running around this little island that we were on, just giddy at the sounds. And he's like, I can't believe you can hear a whale breathing from two miles away. And he's like, I can't believe that you can hear an eagle calling from a mile away. He's like, I can't believe how much you can hear. And, and that, and, and he devoted, devoted his efforts to making sure that that was translated in the film. Um, and, and I think I certainly know that that changed him as a listener. Um, and my hope is that the people who would watch the film, that it would, it would also change them as listeners. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking for myself, I can say it did. I, I have the, uh, I don't know if you can see it there. I have the whoop call on my on my wrist. Oh. Um, I, I thought that was a really beautiful kind of, you, you know, the whales yelling I am to each other. I thought that was a really profound kind of moment. And, and I wanted to have that around to look at, you know. Ah, oh, that's extraordinary. And, and I agree. I think this concept that nature is declaring itself 
and that we also have the right to declare ourselves. Um, and I also love the fact that nature can declare itself quietly. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's really, that's really wonderful. It's really, really wonderful. The, the film opens with uh, this quote from Charles Bowden. I hope I'm saying his name right there. It says, we must keep the beasts at bay and in their place. So we seldom ask them questions, lest they answer and terrify us by smashing our beliefs. There are at least 9 million species on the planet, 2.2 million in the ocean, roughly. Um, and we're finding more and more every day in, in some of the most extreme places we never thought possible. Finding complex cultures and systems in places we never ever thought to look. So I wanted to ask, do you think that kind of science is breaking our idea of life as we know it to pieces currently? Well, I hope not. I would hope that science isn't breaking life as we know it into pieces. Although science does have a tendency to take things apart and forget to put them back together sometimes. I would hope that what science is doing is making us aware that the world is a richer place. It's giving us an opportunity to see more and do more and know more and and to cultivate reverence and understanding and appreciation. Um, does that perhaps mean sometimes that we we untie a, a knot that was a worldview? Sure. But science should, if nothing else, give us the opportunity to change our mind and to acknowledge that there is more out there than we currently know. But I think that that is as as building a consciousness, not dismantling one. I, I love how Richard Feynman is is kind of as curious as a child, and and ever since seeing him be like that, I I felt that scientists should be you know as curious as children when going into the world. Uh, you've mentioned curiosity a few times during this conversation, so I wanted to ask if if you maybe had uh, a little more to say about it, about how to yeah. be curious in a complex world. Oh, absolutely. Um, curiosity, I think, is is part of the, of what it means to be human. And I mean, children are curious, and and then we then they get busy. And curiosity, I think, in a lot of ways, is easy to cultivate. You just have to give it time. You know, write a list instead of saying I don't know what questions to ask or I don't know what I'm interested in. Spend five minutes writing a list of what you don't know, and watch curiosity grow. Um, when you can figure out what you don't know, suddenly there's an interest in figuring out what you can in answering those questions. Um, and, and I think that curiosity is essential for science, but it's also essential for art, innovation, relationship building, um, for, for social harmony. If you can have a curiosity about something, it means that you can that you you have a desire to understand it, that there's an interest in it. So I, I think, again, starting with what you don't know is a great way to cultivate curiosity. And um, and, oh, and and from there, it just explodes. And also starting with what you don't know, and instead of seeking the answer that somebody else gives you, try and make one up. Don't look up the answer to your questions. Discover the answer to your questions. So instead of saying, you know, I don't know I don't know. I don't, I don't know why grass grows. Don't, don't Google it. Go outside and look at the grass, like pull up a blade of grass, a blade of grass. Think about everything you've ever learned and what make, what might make grass grow. Or if you say, I don't know what birds are in my backyard. Don't look at a bird list. Go outside and listen and count how many birds you see, see what you hear. So come up with questions you don't know the answer to, and then be the one who answers them. Curiosity is kind of almost the engine of the human race, I think, you know, whether it's technology or any of the other areas you mentioned, it certainly drives us and maybe it's what took us from, you know, huddled around a fire in a cave to the world we see today. And and that carries on. At the end of the film, you said that it's so hard to interpret the language of the natural world to l listen and understand what it's saying to itself. And, and that's, that is of the same proportion of pointing all our satellites skyward and listening for a sign from outer space. And I wanted to ask, uh, with the launch of the James Webb Telescope, what are your hopes for science in terms of finding and understanding other forms of life and our place in the universe? And do you think we're alone in that regard or that intelligent life exists elsewhere? Oh, that's a big question. I mean, you just asked me what all of my hopes for science were and whether <laughs> or not we were alone in the universe. I mean, I'm still drinking my morning tea. Um, I mean, my hopes for science is that science is integrated that science becomes a part of society 
and that science finds a better way at communicating with people who don't identify as scientists. That way, when we learn about what is out there, people care to understand, they care about it. Um, I, I, in terms of, of are we alone in the universe, that is an, both a scientific question and an existential one. So no, I don't think that we are alone in the universe. I don't necessarily know whether or not that there is another planet out there with intelligent life. I think that that's likely, it's probable. Um, it's not my field of study, but I certainly have, I have a curiosity about that and an interest in it. And I would have a hope that it was true. Um, I also think that there is a lot of life here on this planet that we don't understand. And I would hope that sometimes we would point those satellites inward and ask ourselves what we can learn right here. And, and my hope for science is that science becomes a language that everyone can understand. I mean, we talk about interpreting languages of the natural world or interpreting the language of, of species beyond this world. What do we do about interpreting our own language? I mean, we are not talking to each other as a society, even though we are speaking the same language. How can we take curiosity? How can we take human experience to cultivate a more compassionate world? How can we take what we observe in nature and share it in a way that anyone can understand it? So how do we, how do we find the essence of communication and get better at it so that science can be a tool, not just for understanding the other, but also perhaps a tool for understanding ourselves? And how can we get better at sharing things? That's my hope for science, is that we become better communicators, both interspecifically and intraspecifically. So let's communicate amongst our own species and then and then also be able to be better listeners to to all of the other species out there too. On on the subject of kind of communicating with our own species, do you have any advice for young people, especially young girls? I noticed that your team was all female in the movie, uh, who want yeah. to go into science and maybe do work like you. Yeah. Um Oh, advice. I mean, my, my advice is, 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 is find a group of people that you love and do what you want to do. Find a way. Now, I know that that's very esoteric advice. So like some really tangible advice is find an organization that is willing to pay you to do good work. You know, get a good education, be curious, read books, um, read published literature, read op-eds, you know, devour the knowledge. Like, and then the other piece of advice that I would say for anyone that wants to do science, particularly for young women that want to do science, go there. It isn't about following a traditional path. Like, yes, get a degree in biology. If you want to go to graduate school, if that speaks to you and that's a path that works for you, do that. Get an education. But if you want to understand the natural world and you want to be successful in science, go there. Move to Alaska. Spend your mornings before you do the job that's going to help support you as a human. Spend your mornings sitting on the beach, looking at the waves and listening. If you want to, if, if you want to study animals, go there. Go and listen. You don't necessarily have to go there to be a biologist. You can go to be an observer. And then find someone you trust and tell them what you hear. Find someone you love and tell them your story. Help to cultivate a community. Find a mentor. And don't take any mentor. Take a mentor that resonates with you. Work with people that appreciate you. Acknowledge that you have strengths. And if someone else is not seeing them, perhaps they aren't the best fit for you. And raise up other women. When a woman does something that is amazing or something that is admirable or something that is humble, loud that. Give that a platform and give that a voice. Give a voice to the, the people and the women and the allies that you respect. And so sometimes I think the most successful thing that we can do to cultivate a more diverse group of, of scientific voices is to talk less, spend less time talking about yourself and more time talking about somebody else. Find people you admire and emulate them and acknowledge them publicly and loudly. The more that we can acknowledge diverse voices, the voices of women, the voices of indigenous people, the voices of people of color, the more that we can raise up the idea that there is a diversity of perspectives, 
that will cultivate a opportunity and a culture of science that is worth participating in. So that was a bit of a rant, but. <laughs> no, I loved it. That's uh, you're, you're my people, Michelle. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but before we finish up, let, let's just go through some listener questions. Uh, Nathan asked, uh, do whales dream? Oh, I don't know. Um, so that's a complex question. This one's a little technical. Whales don't sleep like we sleep. They have something called um, semi-hemispheric sleeping in that whales are voluntary breathers. This is true for all cetaceans. So they can't fully go to sleep or they would forget to breathe and they would drown or suffocate rather. So they have two sides of their brain. And what they'll do is they'll put one side of their brain to sleep and the other side will stay awake to remember to function, you know, to take a breath, to stay at the surface of the water and things like that. And then they switch and the other side of their brain will go to sleep and the other side of their brain will stay awake. Um, and we know this from, um, from scientists that I wish I could remember their names right now who have done this with dolphins and other cetaceans. You know, they've put anodes and whatnot on, on cetacean heads and looked at brain activity. So does the side of the brain that is sleeping dream? Most mammals dream. So I can't, so I, I would guess that whales dream. So I don't know the answer to that, but I'll say I hope so and I think so. I, I wonder if a whale's dreams of you really giant swimming around coral reefs. Kind of <laughs> That's exactly what they're dreaming of. They're like, whose voice was that? She was calling to me in the night. I have to find her. Yeah, that's that's definitely what the whales are dreaming about. Uh, Sean, Sean Cahill asks, uh, if you could share any impressions of the impact of increased spindle cells in the orca limbic brain and observations mm -hmm. in perceived Cretaceous culture, is there observational evidence for the existence of a more complex level of emotional communication amongst orca and cetaceans than amongst humans? Yes. So um, this spindle neuron concept is one that there is a neuron which is identified in several different species, humans being one of them. And it has been hypothesized that that particular um, neuron is associated with compassion and with altruism. And we have seen this you know, spindle neurons in the brains of humpback whales um, and a couple other species. It is comparatively rare. Um, whether or not it's rare because we haven't looked or it's rare because it's ecologically rare, I can't speak to. But there has been evidence in in humpback whales of of what we perceive as as altruism, um, of selfless acts. And and you know, there's a really great paper about this um, that I think Bob Pittman wrote, um, where there have been many examples that, that folks have seen over the years of humpback whales intervening to protect a, another species. So as killer whales would come in to try and predate something, a humpback whale would come and get in between them and protect either, like I know in one instance it was a sunfish, that they came in to protect this sunfish. And I can say personally, that I have observed this. Now I want to be very careful about whether or not it's compassion because compassion is a word that we use to describe humanity. This is, that is a human emotion, a human action to be compassionate. Whales are not human. The, the, you can't apply our worldview and our sensory perspective to whales. It's unfair. Now that doesn't mean that they are lesser than it likely means that they are they are other equal to but other that being said though i was on a boat in southeast alaska and um we were whale watching and we saw a group of killer whales that were hunting a stellar sea lion and there were humpback whales quite far away you know we had seen humpback whales off in the distance and our boat we were being very responsible stay very far away um but we were watching this group of transient killer whales attacking the sea lion because that's what they eat and a humpback whale that we know very well we, we know that it's a it's a juno resident whale a whale that, that had been in the community for many many years um spot is that whale's name um got in between the killer whales and the stellar sea lion and then two other humpback whales came over and they formed a, a triangle around this stellar sea lion. And one of them actually rolled over and put the sea lion on its belly and began slapping its pectoral fins and actively protecting it from, from the killer whales. There is not a 
it, it was incredible. It was extraordinary. And there's, there's not a lot of reasons or things that you can say to describe an interaction like that, other than to, to, to acknowledge that those humpbacks intervened in that particular ecological sequence. And the best and most obvious explanation is that they were protecting that sea lion from being eaten. Whether or not that's an altruistic act, it certainly seems like it from our human perspective. There's a whole suite of other explanations that you could come up with. But one of them is certainly that that altruism exists in the natural world. That's kind of encouraging to know, isn't it? That it might be a natural state of things. Yeah, although it's not so good for the, for the killer whales. No, I, mean, I guess not. <laughs> yeah, so it really depends on whose perspective you're taking. Um, if somebody came into my home and refused to let me eat my dinner and they took it from me, I don't think that we would call that person altruistic. I think sure. we would call them a thief. And so I think that's another really important thing to remember is that there is no greater than in the natural world. Um, that they're, they're, it's, it's, it's a web. It's, an, it's an interactive. And predators and prey is, is I mean, certainly they're, like, killer whales are predators. Um, and sea lions are prey. Sea lions are also predators and fish are prey. Would we deny the sea lion the fish? Like, what does it mean when you think about things, not from the perspective of good or bad or right or wrong, um, but, but as, as complex as the system is? So who as humans do we want to have compassion for? So I think um, having perspective on that one is really important. I, I really love that a discussion about whale language is essentially turned into a philosophical conversation. Uh, <laughs> it says a lot about their culture and what we're finding out, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Benji would like to know if you found any commonalities, commonalities between the frequency of major or minor musical scales and the emotional states of the animals singing. So I have not done that research, but some people are. Um, what we have found is there's this theory in science called motivational structure theory, and it's the concept that invertebrates, so mammals and birds predominantly is where they've looked at this, that you can actually identify an animal's motivational state based on the sounds that it makes. So if you think about this in humans, and human, human language does obey motivational structure laws, um, you know, you can tell the difference between someone who is trying to be aggressive and, and sort of shouting or, or you know, ah, get away, go, 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 versus someone who is trying to appease, like, oh, oh, that's wonderful. Oh, thank you so much. And you can hear that in one case, my voice gets low and um, louder and has certain specific qualities. And in the other, my voice gets higher and softer. And we have observed this in animals. I mean, you, we know the difference between a dog that's whining and a dog that's growling and a dog that's barking. And um, Rebecca Dunlop did some of this work in humpback whales and, um, and looked to see whether or not arousal states followed these rules and found that it did, that there is some evidence that you can infer the motivation or the, the state of, of a whale based on the sounds itself. Now, we haven't linked that to music. And um, there's a woman whose name escapes me at the moment, but she's been doing that a little bit with whale song, looking at the relationship between the structure of whale song and the structure of human music and finding commonalities there. But I do think that um, in the same way that we, in, it's really important for lots of mammals to infer the motivational or emotional state of others in order to know how to properly act, that that is definitely information that is encoded in humpback whale language. And while we haven't yet necessarily figured out what the sound of, of an aggressive whale call versus a appeasing whale call might be, they certainly know. Last question. Uh, Lou Elizondo uh, asked, by what basis do we or can we establish a baseline for, for that which there is no apparent decoder or legend to read the code in the first place? Does this include nonverbal cues as well? And can it include languages that are nonverbal too? It certainly should. Um, I mean, it, it is, again, it's, there's a, an arrogance in thinking that communication is only limited to the way that we do it. And I mean, for that matter, humans use nonverbal cues all the time. So there are lots of, of field of scientific study about visual signaling and olfactory communication. Um, and so I would say that in, in the animal world, we're actually fairly good at that, at looking at how animals communicate nonverbally. Um, and in humpback whales, I'm working on a project right now with um, 
a researcher named um, Josephine Schultz, where we're looking at what what makes a whale breach, what why you know what inspires a whale to jump out of the water, and and that's a non-verbal cue. And the work by Rebecca Dunlop showed that it's likely that these that breaching and flipper slapping and tail lobbing that those are all forms of, of nonverbal communication. So yes, I think that it is essential that we look at these things holistically. Now, underwater, it makes the most sense to look at sound because it's very hard to otherwise see and because chemical signals don't travel very far. Um, but in air and in land, I think that that's an extremely important point that it isn't just what we hear and what is said that makes up language, that there are, are cues that come from, from all kinds of sources that might not be things that you could hear. One more question that I'm just going to throw in here um, is about the, the area of the Catalina Islands off the coast of uh, California. Mm-hmm. I, I hear a lot of conversation about that area being important to, to whale migration. Um, yeah. And I just wanted to know if you uh, could enlighten me on that. Um, sure. I, I don't work there, so I should be very clear about that. But the whole area in, in sort of that Southern California region near the Catalina Islands is I mean, I, I, I'm assuming we're talking about Catalina Island, which is off of California. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Just making sure that I'm not making a total fool of myself on, on a podcast. Um, yes, that's a really important foraging ground um, for blue whales, fin whales, humpback whales. Um, it's also a really important foraging ground for California sea lions and harbor seals. It's um, it's a biological hotspot for sure. Um, Catalina Island also has a really quite extraordinary um, biodiversity of birds and um you know in southern california also is an industrial area so that whole area down there they've been doing a lot of work on preventing ship strikes and reducing noise and and trying to understand biodiversity um and then the california coast all the way up the pacific coast up to oregon and washington is an upwelling zone and so we have areas of really high primary productivity. And there are populations of whales that will stick around in that, um, in some cases, we call them the cow stock, the California, Oregon, Washington stock, rather than migrating all the way up north. And so that area is, is I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a critical foraging ground, it's a, a conservation area. And it's also an area where we have a lot of people, which means it's a great opportunity. It's an opportunity for people to observe whales. It's an opportunity for people to understand the diversity in their local ecosystem and for us to um, self-manage. Like, how do we manage ourselves in the context of these animals? Not remove us from the ecosystem. We're never going to remove humans from the equation, and we shouldn't. But how do we how do we happily coexist in this sort of urban urban ocean? That was an incredibly enlightening conversation. And just before we wrap up, uh, can you let people know how they can follow your work? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm easy to find. Um, you can follow my work on occasionally I'm on Twitter at Mbella Lady. You can also follow the work of my of the nonprofit of which I'm the director, which is um the Sound Science Research Collective. You can find us at soundsciencecollective.org. You can also find me on Instagram where I post whale photos from time to time. I'm also at Mbella Lady there. And you can also just Google me. I'm a I'm a visiting assistant professor at the University of New Hampshire. So you can follow my research lab there, the Sea Babble Lab. So it's the marine bioacoustics and behavior lab sea babble and and you can go watch fathom if you haven't already um and then you'll learn more about me than you ever wanted to because it's a very revealing film but there's also lots of whales so you could watch it for the whales well do you know if there'll be a follow-up for fathom no there will not be a follow-up for fathom that is just a one and done yeah although i do think that the filmmaker will probably come back to me into the film um, into the field um just for just for giggles, but no, there there will be there will be no fathom to. <laughs> well, a huge thank you to uh, yourself, Dr. Michelle Fournay, for a wonderful conversation, and thank you to all the listeners for listening. With that, we'll sit for a minute and just really take in what we're hearing and listen to some complex whale song and appreciate it. Now, Michelle's enlightened us as to as to what we're hearing.
That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. If you could like, share, and subscribe, that would be very much appreciated. You can support the show and get ad-free early access to content by becoming a member on YouTube or on Patreon. Just search the name of the channel, That UFO Podcast. Please feel free to get in touch with me on Twitter or Instagram at TheZignal or email me at TheZignal at ProtonMail.com. As always, remember to be curious. The universe is bigger than we know. Thank you.